This is Ashley at Recovery Radio, and I'm having a great day. I hope you are too. I'm expressing my gratitude today by volunteering at Recovery Radio, helping them fulfill their mission to provide quality audio support to recovering people. If you would like to help and give expression to your gratitude as well, you can do so by donating to our cause. Please go to recoveryradio.net and click the donate button. We will put your generosity to work supporting the worldwide community of recovering people. And you'll feel good knowing you found a way to share your gratitude with many people today. Is that funny? We're already laughing. I haven't said anything. Uh, My name is Brian. I'm alcoholic. And by the grace of a loving God, the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and Mediocre Sponsorship, I've been sober (laughs) since... My sponsor's not here, so you... (laughs) Bill, you can edit that, right? (laughs) I've been sober since March 6th of 93, and I have good sponsorship. And I believe in good sponsorship. And you always tell good AA there's always good sponsorship attached to it. So uh, I'm grateful that the committee asked. It's been an honor. And uh, it was great hearing you, Sean. Sean. Look, Sean told half of my story. I mean, there's some, some similarities between me and Sean. He's a little taller than me, but there's a lot of stuff. Uh, it's going to be a different story, but I'm telling you, there's some things. I, I, uh, I used to exercise racehorses, too. Um, never got thrown from one, but I was bitten by one called Not to Be Trusted. I did, that did happen. So, so that did happen. Uh, so I'm really grateful to be here. And, uh, you know, he talked about Jamie, his hot hostess, you know, like whatever. I said, I got, I got Matt. I mean, this yeah. I mean, come on. The ladies are jealous. Yeah, baby. I better start this. So this is what, a two-hour meeting? Is that what it is? All right. I'm nervous, too. And, and uh, I, I've been sober 22 years, and I am so amazed. On March 6th of 93 is when I got uh, intervened on. It was a day. In fact, how many people are in their first year of sobriety? Raise your hand if you're in your less than 12 months. Well, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. This is, that's, and I am, you know, I, I, uh, I did not plan on getting sober. I just want to let you know. I didn't, like, wake up, call ANA and say, hey, I'm going to come to you guys. Uh, I was uh, sent here by my parole officer. He, uh, I had just spent another year in prison and uh, got out, and I drank the first day out. At a half house. I was in, well, really in a homeless shelter. They called it a halfway house, but the only reason I was there is I had nowhere to live. And, uh, and I was 29 years old. And that this is, I'm going to tell you, if you're new, do not try to compare, like, if you want to, like, compare yourself out of Alcoholics Anonymous, like, listen to Sean, okay? Or listen to my story, because that's an easy way to say, well, I never did that and I never did that. I mean, I'm a guy, I rob banks for a living. So, I mean, it's easy to compare out. That's not, what you want to do is identify on what goes through my mind and how alcohol, how my reaction to alcohol and what happens to me when I'm not drinking and I have no spiritual program, when I'm just sober, which is very painful for me, uh, and how the lies, my mind starts telling me lies. And uh, identify with that because I love Alcoholics Anonymous. And I love hearing a guy like Sean because you could tell he loves Alcoholics Anonymous. Brad is out of control, and he's sponsoring this cat right here, and he's out of control. So... Uh, I thought coming to AA was the lamest thing that was going to happen to me. All right, 29 years old. I had spent almost seven years in the feds uh, for those crimes I just talked about. Was way too hip for Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, I was like, I was Shorty P, man. You know, I didn't mess with me. (laughs) I was... uh, Yeah, in fact, I'll tell you a story. <laughs> I don't even know this is not my normal story. So obviously, well, we did pray. Me, Brad, and Matt in the back kitchen. We got quiet. So we asked God just to help, you know, get me out of the way and let God speak to me. So anything that comes out today is the benefit and goes to the credit of God. Okay, so I just want to know. If you thank me after this, you're really thanking God. If you're judging me, you're judging God too. Just want to let you know that. <laughs> and, uh, and we don't do that in Alcoholics Anonymous, so, so watch yourself. So I, uh, 
I remember I was about, I was in this, uh, I, I don't know, oh, Terre Haute, Indiana, anyone know Terre Haute, Indiana? So I was doing a, I worked my way up to Terre Haute. I started in Michigan with Terre Haute. I'll tell you, it's in my story. It's, you know, it's not the way you're supposed to work in the system. You're supposed to go out. And I was just working myself up. <laughs> and uh, I'll never forget it. This is like, and there's a big chow hall. And I'm in the chow hall. And these guys that I've done, you know, I've done like three or four years with these guys. And they come in and they, they get up on the table and they start screaming like, everyone shut up, shut up. We want to make an announcement. And the place gets quiet. They said, we have someone in our midst who is a star. And they said, Shorty P right there is the shortest bank robber in captivity right now. That's, that's, the, that's the best I got. All right. So on March 6th of 93, now I'd been in AA for a year. I, I got sent to AA in 92. And I did what happens a lot in Alcoholics Anonymous is I thought my problem was alcohol. So I'm just not going to drink. And what happened for me is I went to two meetings a day and I got sicker in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I got sicker. I, uh, it was great for about maybe three months. I was like the boy whistling in the dark. Like, yeah, I love this sobriety thing. This is awesome. Still wouldn't let anyone hug me. The newcomer girls could hug me, but, and the old ladies. But I didn't like guys. I, I didn't have daddy issues, but I definitely did not like men. And, you know, most of my 20s were locked up, so I was like, you know, I was trying to explore. And, uh, but I was like, seriously, I love, here, here's the truth. The Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, there's magic inside the halls. Even when there's not a solution, just the power of people being there, like they have the same problem. There's something, when I walked in, I wanted to deny it. I was so much, because I had to get my sheet signed. I so much didn't want to be like like it, but I sat in the back and I used to have this uh, Fu, creepy Fu Manchu mustache and I wore this Axl Rose bandana and I had long hair. You know, I'm 53 now. This is like 29, and I, and I would sit in the corner and scowl at people. But there was something inside of me that was undeniable. There was something happening in the halls of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it lasted for me for about 90 days. In about 91 days, I started picking apart Alcoholics Anonymous. And it was one AA member at a time. And then it became one meeting at a time. And then one clubhouse at a time. See, because I didn't change. Nothing changed because I'm not drinking. In fact, me untreated is ugly. I, I mean, I describe in the doctor's opinion, restless, irritable, discontent. That doesn't even touch it, how I felt. I was like turning inside. It was getting tighter and it was getting tighter and I was just hating everybody. And I, I, the only way I could get through some meetings is I would visualize, and this is like at nine months, ten months over, I would visualize running up to the guy who was speaking way too long. Like six months before, I loved his little five-minute rants. I loved it. Now, I just want to throw coffee in his face and tell him to shut the hell up. <laughs> he didn't change. He's the same guy six months. I, I started to get sicker, and I got a year and two weeks, and I drank. And, uh, and I was working in a rehab. I know. I was. I was, uh, I was like the guy, you know, they call him Tex. You know, I was, I was, uh, there was a, they had uh, thoroughbred and quarter horses out there. It was like a working farm. It was non-licensed. It was kind of a cool place, you know, 12-step, two meetings a day, lived on property. I was right in the middle of everything, except I was dying inside. And uh, I did that life for three months. I've spent nine months in solitary, nine months in a cage. Being, drinking and going to AA meetings was the loneliest I've ever been. It, look, my time in SEG paled in comparison to me drinking in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I would drink, I would get up. Here's how I drank, here's my relapse. Well, here's the time I drank, which it was relapse happened way before, but I was dealing drugs in AA. I think that's probably where it started. I think that's <laughs> not a good job to have, you know, but I, uh, the night I drank, I, this is my second AA meeting. Second meeting. And I walked out of the meeting and the thought popped in my head, I, go, I should go see Rob and Jody. I haven't seen them in probably a year and a half. They're probably wondering what's up. Now, these guys, they, they, they like live in a crack house. It's like, I know what they were doing. Like, I wonder what they're doing. 
that's how casual it was. And I, and I had a uh, rehab vehicle, which, you know, I drove over to their house. And they were doing what they've always done. They were getting high. And uh, they knew enough not to let me partake in that. Because when I robbed banks, that's really what it was about, see? And that was the lie I brought in. I, what, the lie I brought in Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm not really an alcoholic, I'm a drug addict, because of the drama. See, I thought the drama represented the problem. The drama is just stuff we do. It's just, the dra it's just drama. It's just what we do. I, just, I, just, I know what I'm capable of doing. In fact, every bank I robbed, I was sober. Every one of them. Sometimes I say I was in a sober blackout, but... <laughs> that night, though, that night... What I said was, you know what? I could have a few beers. Just a few. I, that's what I said. I'm just going to have a couple, hang out, watch them smoke crack, and then I'll go home. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, look, I opened it up, and I'm going to tell you right now, alcohol always worked for me. Even the last time I drank, it worked. It, rem it gave me a sense of ease and comfort. It took away all the fears and the angst and all the restlessness and irritable. Everything that I wanted alcohol would be like, Whew. And what I learned is Alcoholics Anonymous has done slowly for me what booze used to do quickly. And that's what has to happen around here. And I don't get there by sitting in A meetings. I think I do, but I don't. I had to take 12 steps. And uh, I drank about six beers that night and then drove back to this rehab, snuck on property, and I did that for three months, and it got worse, and it got worse, and it got ugly. And, uh, and then I started engaging in outside issues. It was, it was ugly. And then on March 6th of 93, look, I'd given up. I'd been saying for like a month, I'd get up and I would say, okay, you got to stop doing that, man. you got to smarten up, dude. Come on, get it together. Like, you got a job. You're working in rehab. You're, like, driving guys to AA meetings. They're coming in, locking on my door, you know, telling me they want to leave rehab, and I'm bringing them in, like, no, you don't want to leave. Come on. And, and I'd be like, no, let's go. Come on, this is awesome. My eyes are bugging out, you know. I'm talking 100 miles an hour, and they're like, chill, dude. I'm like, this is the best thing. Sobriety's awesome. And they're like, oh, thanks, man. And they'd leave, and I'd go back in the room and hang out, you know, and, uh, that's yeah, pretty pathetic. And uh, though there's probably guys sober because of that. I don't know, maybe. But on March 6th of 93, I was, I was done. I was planning my next move. This is no lie. This is from March 1st to March 6th. This is what was happening. In my mind, I was planning my next. I was still dealing drugs. I was still getting out of control. And I said, you know what? What's the use? I should just kill myself. What's the use? Or, and then the next thought pops in, or... You could go to Phoenix and rob a bunch of banks and then go to Vegas and start playing poker. <laughs> like, like, I still laugh at that, but you know how scary that is? Because that's my mind, the way that works. A couple more days, it would have happened. But what happened that day is a true miracle. And I believe, you know, when I say I'm sober by the grace of God, it's not like I have special grace. I think on this day... I was just open to God's grace. I was just, you know, I was okay with God's grace. I think the whole thing about grace, I think everybody in the room here is in the, is, is in the middle of God's grace. It's, I just accepted God's grace on that day. I believe there's two surrenders in Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe that there's a surrender to the bottle, and then there's a surrender of my will. And for me, on March 6th, that happened both of them at the same time. And here's how it worked. I was going to go to the dog track, and I was going to uh, double my money. That's clearly what I was planning on doing. I was going to... And uh, I started to get up out of my trailer, and this guy, Max, who uh, was my running partner, you know how you have running, like road dogs? He was my road dog in sobriety, you know, like we ran together, and he'd done time in California State. We, we related to each other, you know. <laughs> he, he, I mean, he was a heroin addict. You know, he was like, he, uh, he was a little different than me. But we, there was something about, we connected, and uh, he stepped up, he came into my door, and he got kind of close to me, and I, I'm like, that caught my attention. He said, hey, I got a question for you. I said, yeah, what's that, Max? He said, hey, man, how long have you been sober? 
And I said, uh, what do you mean? You were at my year anniversary three months ago. I said, you know what? I don't need this. And I started to try to go around him, and he shifted up, and he got right in my face. And he said, no, really, how long are you sober? A week, a day, maybe not even. And uh, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. I don't know how it happened. But all I know is at that moment, I was done. I said, I'm sober today. And I want to drink bad. And, uh, and he held on to me. He said, I don't want to see you die. I love you like a brother. I don't want to see you die. And uh, the vice president of that treatment center was out in the car. Uh, it was a trap. And he came in. <laughs> and, uh, and I think they had talked. And then he, Max said, let me just talk to him. I, you know, he'll trust me. And I think that's what the deal was. I trusted Max. I, I felt like I wanted to get honest. I wanted to be sober, but I just couldn't. Lack of power was totally my dilemma, completely. I, I get it. And uh, this guy, Kent, came in. And he said, uh, what's going on? And I told him, I've been, look, I've been drinking for, you know, drinking and drugging for the last, last three months. He said, yeah, let's call Ted. Ted was the owner. He called up Ted. And Ted said, what's going on, son? I told him, he said, yeah, you can't work for me. I said, I understand, Ted. I said, I'll, I'll leave today. And he said, no, I'm not asking you to leave, Brian. You don't need to leave. You just can't work for me. He says, if you want to be a client, you can be a client. And I said, I don't have any money. My parents, just be, my parents, when I tell you some of the pre-story, my parents disowned me pretty much. They had to walk away. I made them do it. When Sean was talking about being a victim, I get that. I walked into recovery a victim when I came out of my, you know, when I, really when I came out of my fifth step, I understood clearly that I'd made my mom disown her baby. But at the time, I, you know, they, nobody wanted anything to do with me. And uh, I said, my family, I don't have that kind of money, Ted. I, I got nothing. He said, no, you don't, you don't hear me. I don't want your money. I just don't want to see you die. My life has been people caring more about me than I cared about myself. Could not see it. You want to talk about willingness. I had to pack up my bags and go live in client housing. I had to hand the keys in from driving the vans to the meetings to sitting in the back of the van. That's how willing I was. I, I, I would do anything for recovery. I've never been complacent. I've been sober 22 and a half years. I don't understand the word complacency. I'm never going to go back to that guy. And uh, I started this journey on March 6th of 93. i got to tell you right now, it's been the best experience of my life. You know, when I, uh, I grew up in California, I, um, you know, it's really sad. Max about started shooting heroin about six months later and never drawn a sober breath. And I've tried to help him. I don't know why that is. You know, I met this guy, Don P., in 1996 uh, from Colorado. If you know him, you know who I'm talking about. And uh, He touched my life like no one ever has. And he used to tell me, like, look, if you really want to know God, Brian, if you're really interested in knowing God, then get to know his kids. And that's really what my journey's been about. At my core, I'm an isolator. I like to be by myself. I don't like people. People say that's weird because they think I'm a, like an outward guy, but really I'm more inward. And there's lots of reasons. I could give you lots of reasons. I, you know, it could be because I'm short, so I always feel different, like whatever, you know. Uh, stuff happened to me in prison. I'll probably share later, you know, like the violence that I experienced and that I experienced, you know, that I participated in. You know, I think when you've witnessed the inhumanity of man, you start to get separated from it. But I haven't been able to do that in sobriety, which I think is the best thing for a guy like me. I, uh, I grew up in Stockton, California. It doesn't mean anything unless you're from California. And then it still doesn't mean anything except it's like the armpit of California. So if you tell people you're like, if they're from California, they go, well, where'd you go? I said, Stockton. They're like, oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> It's a place you want to be from, unless you're actually from Stockton here on vis visiting, then welcome. Uh, <laughs> I was born in 62. Uh, we moved to Tucson, Arizona in 1976. I was 14 years old. Uh, at the age of 12, 
I started drinking at 10, 11, you know, started really partying. And at the age of 12, I, I ran away from home for the first time. Me and my brother, he was, I was the youngest of four boys. And uh, my brother Chucky died of leukemia when he was seven. I was five. So we were all separated by two years. I was the youngest. So Chucky died. I was five years old. Didn't really know Chucky, uh, except watch what happened to my family, you know. And I uh, never really understood the power of my brother's death had on my mom and dad until I had until I had kids. And I was 40 years old, 10 years sober, 40 years old before I had my daughter, before my daughter was born. And when I held her in my arms, I knew exactly what my mom went through. Not exactly, but I could, under I could at least start to understand how painful that was. And when my brother died, my dad threw, him, threw his pain into work, and he worked at IBM, and he just got busy working, and my mom got busy drinking. And I judged her for a long time about that. And I believed when she went to the bars every night with her girlfriends and said she'd come back in an hour, she meant it just like I meant it. And it did everything for her that it always did for me. Uh, at the age of 12, my brother Steve, who was 16, well, I was 12, he was 16, and my other brother had just graduated high school. Steve said, hey, we're running away, a bunch of his buddies. And I said, okay. <laughs> I had a Little League game like a week later. I'm like, you know, I guess I'm going to miss my game. And... Uh, And so I, I, I ran away and then, you know, went to, went to the youth center. And then my parents, my brother got kicked out. My parents did, they moved to Tucson. My dad took a job in Tucson. Part of it was a, a, a promotion, but really it was the geographical. They wanted to save me from going to prison. My mom used to visit me up in Milan, Michigan. You know, she said, I never wanted this for you. And I had to let her off the hook. It's not your fault. I, uh... Moved to Tucson, 1976. Tried to be sober for a minute, hated it, and uh, started drinking. And I and I was an alcoholic. I, I don't think I think I was a hard drinker, and then I shifted over to a real alcoholic. I truly believe that uh, alcohol. I had a little bit of power over alcohol at certain times, uh, but I also had a green light to drink. My mom was like, "Hey, are you going to go out and like in high school? If I was going to drink at a party, my mom would say, "Well, just sleep in your car if you get drunk." She would rather have me drunk in a car sleeping than driving home drunk. I thought that was cool. And maybe it was. Maybe it saved my life. Uh, but so I couldn't see, I couldn't understand alcoholism. Alcoholism to me was a guy living under the bridge. I was never alcoholic. Even when I was 29 selling plasma downtown Tucson. When I'm standing, and this is how arrogant I am. You, to sell plasma, you have to be 110 pounds. Like, you have to be 110. I weighed like 107. So I would put rocks in my pocket. And then I would stand in line. And I would judge everybody else, like, what a bunch of losers next. <laughs> could not see, couldn't see alcoholism. You know, they use, look, I'm a, I, I, I'm a CEO of a treatment center, right? But I'm going to tell you right now, we don't ever talk about the word denial. Because we, we're not, we're 12-step based. Like, no, there's no such thing as denial. It's delusion. Denial is I know the truth and I'm just denying it. I was delusional. I, I believe uh, the illusion. I would look at something that wasn't true. I'd look at a white wall and see black, and I'd like, yeah, no, it's, you know, it's black. That's how I looked about my drink, and I'm not alcoholic. Can't be alcoholic. Too short to be alcoholic. Too, too smart. Too young. Too educated. You know. Too cool. I'm shorty P, man. I can't be alcoholic. <laughs> Couldn't see it. But I tell you, you know what? I here's how I, I used to say I caught alcoholism in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I know that's true because when I came to AA, I was not alcoholic. And then somewhere along the line, I'm like, oh. Usually it was after the doctor's opinion. I'm like, oh, I'm alcoholic. <laughs> but I crossed the line somewhere. And I don't know what, between 18 and uh, 21, somewhere along the line, I started, uh, you know, like this is the type, I, it, here's how sick my mind's taken. I'm thinking, God, if I drank with Sean, I could have lasted a few more years because I would have looked at Sean and I would have said, you know what, when I, when I started drinking like Sean, then I'll look at myself. Because I would pit myself against other guys. I had a friend who would drink in the morning. Guy Steve, he would drink in the morning. I'd like, I'd judge him as I'm over there getting high, you know. And I got a bong out in front of me. I'm like, he's so, like, sick. Like, he's got to drink in the morning. But here's what would happen. And if you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous, you can identify with this if you're an alcoholic. Around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, about an hour before I got off work, 
I would start spinning out about where I was going to drink that night, uh, the liquor store I was going to go through on the way home because I had drive through liquor stores in Tucson, which I think is totally cool. You don't even have to get out. <laughs> just the thought of drinking, just the thought of drinking, I would start to get relief. When I got my car and I was driving towards the liquor store, I would get greater relief. Hell, I, you know, I probably could have drove past the liquor store a couple miles, but I, that's how much just the idea I start to feel like it's, it's happening. And I would buy like two 16-ounce buds in a bag, and then and I always buy a six-pack. Here's how here's how ridiculous I'm. I buy a six-pack because that's all I'm going to drink tonight. <laughs> and then about three into it, after my other, you know, I've already had five, I start to change my mind, and I think I'm changing my mind. That's the lie I always went with, that I changed my mind. I had a better plan than the plan I had earlier. And uh, from uh, 19 to 21, I started dealing drugs to supplement uh, a habit. And, uh, and I was a really bad drug dealer. I dealt the drug I was using, which is not good. Don't do that. Uh, I started dating a girl who became my fiance, whose dad owned a gun shop. I started stealing guns from him. I started robbing drug dealers. And I, and I was... It was stupid because it would be people from the bar that I knew from high school, you know, like, oh, so-and-so's dealing. Like, really? He's a punk. I'd get ski mask and rob him. And I'd be like, hey, man, give me your money. And they're like, yeah. They all knew it. Every one of them knew it. Like, seriously, they'd say, like, hey, Percox, we know it's you. And I'd be like, oh, they bought the man que onda, man. Like, like seriously. And then, uh, yeah, I was out of control. And it's seriously, but in my mind, like when I'd get up in the morning, sometimes I'd look in the mirror like, what's up, dude? And then I'd be like, I would get it together. A few drinks, man. All, whatever happened the day before, a few drinks. Whatever happened during the day, a few drinks would take it all away. I'd get a new plan. One night I went out to, uh, I was uh, 21. This is like the last, this is the beginning of the end for me. And I know, I'm trying to time myself, making sure I'm doing right. Okay, I, uh, I'll cut to the chase. I took a friend out to rob a Kentucky Fried Chicken. We didn't, we ended up, we, we, uh, we ended up buying like a three-piece meal or something. Like, <laughs> that guys in Texas call me three-piece now. That's what they're, that's my nickname. They don't even call me Shorty P. They're like, hey, three-piece, what's up, dude? Uh, and then I went out, I went out that night to kill myself. And I, and I am not, look, I'm an overly optimistic guy. I've always been that way. I mean, I thought I used to love Jack Lambert when I was a kid. I thought I was going to be like a middle linebacker. I mean, and I was like, really? Dude, you don't even play football. I play baseball, but I'm going to be a middle. I'm delusional. Like, I've always been like, it's all going to be good. My glass has always been half full. Even when I don't have a glass, it's half full, right? <laughs> it's coming. And uh, look, I bought, I bought raffle tickets to look cool, to give him some, but really secretly, I think I'm going to win. <laughs> look, I don't want to. Be a bummer, but you know, it's possible. So I, uh, I went out to kill myself, and I, and I say this, this is a really, we're laughing like really, only an Alcoholics Anonymous, the guy's gonna kill himself. Huh? <laughs> I took my roommate's car and I took a piece of hose and I drove out to the desert. I'm just telling you this because I wasn't looking for help. I wasn't, it wasn't a cry for help. It was literally, I am done on this earth, 21 years old, and I'm tired. I was tired. And about half hour in the pumping fumes into the car, I had the first selfless thought I've had in years, which was, as I was writing a letter to my mom, it over, I have an overwhelming sense I could not do that to my mother. Couldn't do it. She already buried one boy. I'm her youngest. I'm her baby. She spent her whole life trying to save me. And I walked out of the car, and I realized I was not checking out. And so I drove into town the next day and robbed the bank. And that's, that's what I did. I didn't like, because I knew my problem, my problem wasn't that I was drinking alcoholically and that I owed drug dealers all over town money. That was not my problem. My problem is I didn't have enough money. And if lack of funds is your dilemma, then funds is your solution. Like, and I thought you go to a bank, that's where they got money. And, uh, and I got, I'm not a gangster, I just want to be clear. Like, let's be clear, I'm not like a gangster. I got $50 my first bank robbery. 50, 50. Look. I couldn't even make that up. I didn't even want to say it. 
and I asked for it. It's not like they just gave me 15 and ran down to the bank. I wrote a note, said, hey, I have $50. I have a gun. Give me $50 or I'll kill you. That's what I said. <laughs> Look, it pains me to even say that. If anyone ever did time with ever hears one, they're like, damn, he said it's like $40,000. Because they always ask, like, how much money do you get? Forty k. $50. I mean, it was like, and, and I don't know how to rob a bank. I'm, I'm just, I, I, wake, I make a note out. I'm just like freaking out. I'm sober. And it's like, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning. And I'm, I'm at the counter and I write, a, I turn it over and I write a note. You know, I have a gun. Give me $50 or I'll shoot you. Or, and I stand in line. I stand in line and wait. It's my turn. <laughs> I think it's good to be nice. And uh, anyway, I get away with it. And I uh, drive over to the 7-Eleven and I get a 12-pack of Budweiser. And I drink about four of them, like real quick. And I and everything, I'm shaking like this, and everything starts to go. And I drive all the way across town and rob another bank. I didn't ask for fifty. And I got all the money I needed. I paid all the debts off. Six months later, I'm at the same situation. I'm at the exact same spot six months later. Tell my boss, I said, hey, I need the van. Klein Construction. This is my getaway car. Klein Construction. It's a van. It's bright colors. I take it. I go in the town, rob a bank, go back to the job site. Two weeks later, I come home from work. Every other day, I've come home. I put my booze in the refrigerator, and there's an article in the paper, and it's a picture. This is the type of root, this is the type of people I ran with. Some one of my roommates, I think it was Rob, who I visited later on. Rob, Rob and Jody, Rob. Rob had saw the article in the paper, which was a picture of me, even though it didn't say me, and it said, "Hey, this guy's wanted for three bank robberies, eight-eight crime, five thousand dollar reward," and he, they cut it out and put it on the refrigerator. <laughs> Now, I come in from work, I walk in, and I, uh, I see it, and I start, you know, my heart almost jumps out of me, and I start to shake, and then I compose myself, have a few drinks, and uh, I yank it down, I go and throw it, and there's like four of these guys, and they're all looking, and I go, dude, what's up with that? And they're like, oh, dude, man, some dude's running around town, Robin Banks looks just like you, man. <laughs> That's the type of guys I ran with. And then, uh, huh. you know, my mom died a year ago. And when my mom died, I'd made amends to all these guys. Like, I cleaned up a lot of wreckage in Tucson. And when my mom died, a bunch of guys got a hold of me, and they said, hey, we should get together. It was like getting the band back together. And we all got together, about 20 of us, and we were just talking. And I had this understanding, like out-of-body experience of, because I do talk a lot and I start, you know, like my life is so different. I don't even recognize that guy anymore. We started talking about those years and they were like, they hadn't heard any of my stories. They didn't know what happened. They didn't know. And we just started talking about how crazy and how like on the edge of life I was living and I didn't even see it. And because of the power of Alcoholics Anonymous and the healing, I was able to make amends to all these guys. And when my mom died, they all reached out to me and they said, hey, man, when you come into town, I want to see you. And I used to steal from these guys and rob from them. I brought the FBI into their house. Because two weeks after that article came out, the FBI came knocking. And, uh, and I got arrested. And my dad bailed me out. My parents got me a lawyer. And I told a big fat lie about what, what happened. It was some story I made up. And my mom and dad wanted to believe it because that's what we want to do. We want to believe our kids. Two weeks before I went to trial, I robbed another bank. I don't quit. I could tell that story. It would take 10 minutes. We don't have time. I'm telling you right now. When I started going through the steps, my sponsor asked me, he said, what's the most insane thing you did? I said, oh, I got that. And when I told him that story, he said, that's not insane. That's just stupid. He said, the most insane thing you did is after having empirical proof that you can't drink safely, believing the lie one more time that it will be different. That's the most insane thing you did. All that other drama is just stupid. That's just like, that's ridiculous. Like, who does that? It's like, well, I did. <laughs> I got arrested on, I did it on a Friday, partied, a real good party on that weekend, and went, went, and I, I went to prison on Monday, and I gotta tell you, I got arrested, FBI arrested me, and I spent the next six years in the feds. And, and you know what? Nothing changed for me. I didn't change inside. In fact, I got worse inside. I got sicker. I made wine. I hustled. Played lots of poker. 
I was a great handball player because I'm low. I could play. I got good at handball. <laughs> Went to the weight pit. I did no groups, no nothing. Got out when I was 28 years old and then was like told by my pro officer, you can't drink or you can't drug. And I said, well, I, I, in my mind, I get the drugs. But you know what? I'm not alcoholic. I'm 28 years old. Alcohol's not a problem. Never been a problem. Well, if alcohol's not a problem and they're telling you not to drink alcohol or you'll go back to prison, if it's truly not a problem, then you wouldn't drink. I went to my 10-year high school reunion. I don't even know why. Someone said, hey, we're going to the 10-year reunion. Want to go? And I was like, yeah, I'm a, you know, like a masterful, successful guy. Let's go. And uh, I was two months sober. I walked in with my friend, and it took me about maybe a half hour to end up in the bar. Because that feeling of uselessness and that feeling of emptiness just got amped up by looking everybody has kids and I got nothing. I got a 76 Malibu that my dad bought me and I'm living with my parents. I'm 28 years old. I've done nothing in my life. And I went into the bar and I wasn't planning on drinking. That's called powerlessness. Walking in, I'm not drinking and I end up drinking. And then I end up dropping dirty urines and I end up on the run from the marshals and I go on, I go off the, I go off the reservation for eight months, and then I get arrested, come out of 7-Eleven, federal marshal, I don't know how they found me, I assault this lady, it was, a br it, was, it was awful, and I do a year, and the year in prison was what changed everything for me, because here's what happened. When I got mail call, right, because I wait for mail call, because my dad sent, my dad, for the first six years I was in prison, sent me a, he sent me a, a, um, a money order, $20 every week for my commissary with a note when I always said, I love you. And it was sometimes it was a long note, sometimes I got it every week. And they called my name and I went up and, it, and it, I opened it up and I looked for the money order. There was no money order. There was a letter from my, letter from my mom and dad, but really it was from my mom. I still have that letter today because that letter changed my life. And what she was saying and paraphrasing was, we love you too much to watch you die in our home. You're going to be 29 when you get out. You're on your own. We will no longer support you. We're paying all the debts off. We're selling the car. You can't come home. And I walk into Alcoholics Anonymous mad at my mom for that. And I'll tell you a story that, that still today even though my mom died a year ago, and, and when I was at her bedside when she died, and there was a lot of healing, my mom knew a sober son. She had a sober son for 21 years. I made amends to my mom. I got sober March 6th of 93, and I, I have a sponsor who was active. Like, you don't, wait, you don't wait to do the steps. He's like, what do you want to wait? That's ridiculous. I was like, having cancer. Like, you know what, I'll wait a year, and I'll do chemo later. You know, Like, that's the solution. Like, let's get going. And so I... Uh, I was about six months sober, and I was in Tucson. I was living in a halfway house with my wife. Been married 21 years. Met her in rehab. Just threw that out there for all the sponsors. So, yes, <laughs> met her in rehab, and we're still married. Good luck, all the sponsors. Got to clean that up for the next week. Well, Shorty P said it could work. I'm not saying it can work. I'm just saying that me and my wife have been married. We've been together our whole sobriety. We met in rehab, we left in rehab, and we have two beautiful kids. The only, it's, it definitely wasn't God's will, it was self-will or unriot, trust me. <laughs> but what we did is we invited God into that relationship. God lives in that relationship and has lived in that relationship since I was about two years sober. I uh, Made amends to my mom. I was six months sober. My wife wanted to move back to Maine. She's from Maine. She said, I want to go home. And I said, all right, I got nothing here in Tucson. My parents don't really want anything to do with me, and nobody else does. And, you know, and I had gone around and made a lot of amends. And I'm a guy who believes that the, the, the ninth step is meant to be completed. And I know there's some that may not ever be met, but I'm telling you right now, like, there's a list. Finish it. Because I would walk into Walmart. I, my pro officer, the guy who sent me to AA, was about seven years sober when he sent me to AA. He broke his anonymity and sent me to you guys because he knew going back to prison wasn't going to work. Because when I drank when I got out, he didn't send me back to prison. He said, you know what, what's, what's one more year going to do? You've already got seven in. He says, you've got to go to AA. So I would call him in the parking lot of a Walmart. I, have like, I owed like $200 or something I stole from him, and I had like $50. or I, Sometimes I had all the money, and I'd say, hey, Tim, uh, 
I'm going to go and make amends to this Walmart. Uh, if they call the cops and arrest me, will you not violate me? And he'd say, uh, he'd always say as he'd mess with me, he said, ah, maybe. You know. <laughs> and um, so this time I was making amends to my mom, and I was told to make amends to my mom and dad separately. And I was sitting down with my mom. And, uh, and it was clear after coming out of a fifth step that, that, I, that I caused my mom to write that, that, that no son should ever make their parents disown them. Like that's, that's something that it can get healed, but like you, it, that's never the kid I wanted to be. I mean, there was other things like money I stole and all that stuff, but that was the one. And I did my amends and I said, is there anything you want to say to me? And she said, yeah, I got lots to say. I said, okay. And she said, um, I just want to let you know something. She says, writing you that letter was harder than burying Chucky. Look, that's not the kid I wanted to be. That's not the son I wanted to be. And I couldn't understand it. I'm like, I don't get it, Mom. And she said, well, let me just tell you. When Chucky got leukemia, it was 1967, and, like, we just gave him up to the doctors. Like, we just knew... There was an 80% chance he was going to die back then. And so we just handled him. doesn't mean it wasn't painful, but we had no choice in the matter. But with you, I wrote that letter on a Monday, and I put it in the mailbox. And an hour later, I went and got it out of the mailbox. And I did that on Tuesday. I did it on Wednesday. I did it on Thursday. And on Friday, as I got up to go get it out of the mailbox, your dad put his hand on my shoulder and said, let him go. You know, walking Alcoholics Anonymous saying, you know what, why don't you just get off my back and leave me alone because I'm not hurting anybody but myself. It's one of the greatest lies that alcoholics say. It's a lie. When I got out of prison, my mom aged. I'll tell you a spiritual experience I had. Recovery's been phenomenal. I've been so blessed. I've had some great teachers. Like Sean, I came in an atheist. I was an atheist when I came in. I didn't trust God. I didn't want God. I hated God. I was molested at the age of 10. When I got out, one time, uh, when I was in Milan, Michigan, I got sent to solitary. Uh, I got sent to Terre Haute, Indiana, which is going from medium security to maximum security. I'm just telling you this. I don't even know why I'm telling you this, because I, I don't share this. I mean, it just happened to me a year ago. And it's not, but maybe it's just what's supposed to happen, so I'm just going to share it. Because I, I always think if I'm going to come and get invited somewhere, I should be as authentic as I can. So you know the real me. I, uh, I was asked to do this retreat up in Seattle about a year ago, June. A year ago in June. It's a big book retreat. You go up there and you spend three days and you just take groups. Just take them my journey through the steps out of the big book. It's an honor to do it. That's how I met Don P. He came to my home group, changed my life. And so I was like, they said, hey, will you come up and do that? And I said, yeah. When I went from Milan to Terre Haute, I had an assault charge. I almost killed an inmate. I'd never experienced rage that day ever in my entire life. Like I wanted to kill somebody. And... In fact, I had to be stopped. And I don't think he's ever been the same. In fact, they kept me locked up because they thought he was going to die. And I went to Terre Haute, and my mom says, why are you, going to, why are you in Terre Haute? She wanted to know why I went up, and I, made a, I told a lie. See... Here's how it went down, and here's the spiritual experience, and I want you to be open to this, and I want to say this because I was a guy who would say I trust God completely. The lie I told my mom was that he stole some stuff from me and punked me out. I was at this big book retreat in Seattle. They asked me to come there, so I'm supposed to be of service to them. What they did not know was that they were about ready to heal me beyond belief. And at this weekend, they do this uh, um, Native American ceremony. It's called a blanket ceremony. And they said, hey, we do this ceremony. We've done it ever since from the beginning. And, it's a, and they, I said, I'm open. And they said, do you mind doing this? I said, no, I don't mind it. What is it? And they said, well, we, put this, we have this special blanket, and we put this blanket around you, and we smudge you, 
and then we smudge everyone around, and it's it's a Native American you know experience. And I, I I'm not Native American, and I don't really do that kind of stuff. But I was like, hey, I'm open to anything. Like I'm a I'm a seeker. And this guy named Loud, he was a punk rocker from Seattle back in the 70s, was the one smudging me. And they put this blanket around me. And as I'm getting quiet, all I hear is this voice is, trust me, it's okay. Trust me, it's okay. I have you. You're safe. This is what I think Loud is saying to me. And he's leaning in. That's what I hear him whispering, like, it's okay. And then they go around, and all I can think about is this lie I've been carrying since I got out of prison. See, what I told my mom, I have a scar under my neck. What I told my mom was, he stole from me and he assaulted me physically, fighting. But what happened that night was not what that happened. What happened that night was four guys came into my cell and beat me to a bloody pub, beat me down and raped me. And then he cut me under my chin and said, I'll see you tomorrow. He was this kid from Detroit, big kid. And my celly came in and found me, and he wanted to take me to the infirmary. I said, I'm not going to the infirmary. He said, well, then we got to do something. The next day, I did something. I, I didn't tell anyone for 21 years. 21 years I kept that secret. Never shared it on a fifth step. See, and you know what's amazing to me was the first person I called when that circle was done wasn't my therapist. It wasn't even my sponsor. I called my wife. I was sitting on the shore of the Pacific Ocean and I was crying and I said, I got to tell you something that you need to know, and if I don't tell you now, I'll, I'll, I'll bring it back in and I'll live with it for another 30 years. And I just shared it. I don't know what it meant. And I remember I met Loud about six months later. I was up in Seattle doing work, and I told him that story. He said, I never said anything to you. He goes, I didn't say anything. I'm going to tell you right now, I used to blame that stuff on God. Me and molested, the violence. That's the absence of God. The existence of God is for me to trust and bring in and say, you know what? It doesn't define who I am. You know, I've been sober 22 years. I sponsor a ton of men. I've done a lot of stuff in Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe in infinite power. Most of my spiritual growth has been through work and self-sacrifice for others. I got busy working in the, in the prison system, and I got, like, I didn't even want to go. Here's how alcoholic I am. I moved to Maine. Now, I don't know why I'm living in Maine. I'm from the southwest and the west coast, and it snows in Maine in April. <laughs> this lady, I was a GSR for my home group, and I was at a district meeting or maybe even an area meeting, and this lady, they called her prison, Marion the prison lady, and she was responsible for getting people to come in and speak. And she heard my story at some A meeting. She said, you need to go into the main state prison. Look, when I, I lived, the house I lived in was about 20 minutes from about seven penal institutions. And I'm like, why am I in Maine? And she pulled me aside and she started stalking me. You got to go into the main state. I didn't want to go into the prison. I did not want to go into the prison cell. I would go to the county jail and I go to the detox. I'll do that all day long. I did not want to go behind the walls. And she, she, she basically hounded me and I, I, I filled out my form and they denied me. The funny thing is, once they denied me, I was like, who they denied me? I didn't want to go. And now I'm all mad, you know. <laughs> Alcoholics are so funny. That's why I love AA. They're just a, we're just the wackiest. Like, I don't want to go to your party, but you better invite me. <laughs> I wasn't even planning on saying yes, but if I don't get invited, I'm all hurt and stuff. You know, like, what's wrong with me? Where you want to go? No. <laughs> so I started going to the prison. And uh, what, I, what I witnessed in the prison is I was just going into the meeting. It's called the Ledge Group. It, was, it started in 1950. It was a registered group. And they, they, they were like an A group, but not, nobody was changing. It was just an A meeting. I'd go on Sundays. It was clearly their meeting. I was just a volunteer. 
and I called up uh, Tom I. Tom I is one of my favorite guys, and Tom I and Don P were my heroes. And uh, I said, this is why I called them both within the same day because I didn't like the answer that Tom gave me, so I called Don, and then Don gave me the same answer. So I was like, all right. I said, Tom, nobody's changing. They said, well, why don't you do something different? Why don't you start a different group? Why don't you maybe take men through the steps? Why don't you do a bid book group? Or, you know, why don't you do something like that? And I'm like, oh, whatever. And then I called Don up, and Don said the same thing. So I said, well, how would I do that, Don? He said, you just call up somebody and ask. And I called up this counselor who was our connection in the prison, and I said, hey, can I do a different group on a different day and take guys through the actual 12 steps? He said, yeah, when do you want to start? And like, caught me off guard. I'm like, I don't know. He said, how about this Friday? Why don't you come in this Friday? <laughs> so I started going in, and I, I still sponsor a guy. I've been sponsoring a guy, the very first guy to, to the steps, 18 years sober. I mean, 18 years I sponsored this guy. He's still got five more years to go. He just called me the other night, like, hey, how are you? We did our very first, we called it Fellowship of the Spirit Conference. If you know anything about them, they're really good conferences. We did a Fellowship of the Spirit in the walls. Like, I, I fell in love with that type of work. And I didn't even like men. The healing. I'll tell you a story that I'm a little bit ashamed of, but I think it has a power about the healing of me one more time running up against me. I'm taking guys through the steps. And uh, I did this inventory. I think I'm, done. I'm okay with my brother. Who's, my brother's the one who, who did me wrong when I was a kid. Okay. And I think he was just whacked at the time. I don't think it meant any more than that. I don't know. But it doesn't matter because it was one of those things. I wrote inventory on it. I got clean on it. You know, I'm 30 years old. I'm still harboring resentments. I'm 30, blah, blah, blah. I got free of it. Well, this guy walks up to me after one of the meetings. He said, hey, can I talk to you? And I know his crime. And I'm walking in like I'm not judging anybody. I'm just here to do God's work. And the guy walks up, and I know he's. I know what his crime is, and I don't like his crime, but he's in the A group. And he says, hey, will you... Can I get can I get in your group next time and go through the steps? Will you sponsor me? And I violated, I violated something. I'm so ashamed of this. I hesitated and I said, you know what? I'll think about it. That is not a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was six years sober, thinking I was a great member of AA. And the guy totally he shifted everything. He's like, okay, and he walked away. And as I walked out of the prison that day, every door that shut behind me got louder and louder. And I kept saying, like, you don't get to choose who you help. God's saying, oh, you really trust me? Well, here, help one of my kids. And I want to judge that man. I got out and I called my sponsor in the car. I'm crying. I said, I just violated something bad. And he, and he says, yeah, that's awful. And he says, so what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. He goes, what are you going to do? And I go, I'm going to go take that guy through the steps, man. He said, yeah, that's awesome. He says, you know what I really think is awesome about this? And I'm like, uh, no. He goes, I think it's great that you have to wait a week before you can go back. <laughs> See, that's good sponsorship. Like, sit with that pain. <laughs> next, seven, next seven days of meditation, I'll be like, Come on, like, do you really trust me? Do you really? That's been my struggle. I, I really, like, I sit here right now, 53 years old. I'm pretty clean right now. I don't even know what's coming around the corner. I'll tell you how I live my life, all right? So I, uh, I, 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 I had so many experiences in the prison system. I, I became a foster parent. My wife and I became, I'm the only convicted felon who was a licensed foster parent in the state of Maine. And I did that. I did that because... I sponsored these twins. I still sponsor one of them. And these twins, one was at the max, one was at the farm. And I was, I was in the middle of their, both their fourth and fifth steps at the same time. And I went in and heard one fifth step. And it was like a six-hour thing. You know, we're in a room. I mean, these guys gave me, like, I had lots of room to work with in this prison system. And I, it was a lot of drama around being in the foster system. And I started feeling a lot of anger towards the state and towards the system. And, uh, but I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe it's just overblown. And I don't think anything of it. And then about a month later, I listened to his twin brother's fifth step at the farm. And it's the exact same story. And I leave there in tears. Not because he's a victim, just because he was victimized. Because he was free. But it hurt. Like, wow, these are kids. And I'm driving home and my wife calls me. We have never talked about foster parents. Never. Ever. We talked about adoption one time, but never talked about this. I'm driving home and she says, hey, what's going on? I said, oh, I just, you know. Just got done with uh, Jimmy's fifth step, and um, what's going on with you? And she said, well, I got a question. What do you think about being a foster parent? I literally had to stop the car. I had to pull over. I was like, what are you talking about? And she said, I don't know. I was just thinking there's probably some kid, maybe some 
you know, eight, nine, ten year old kid that probably needs someone who's probably get lost in the system. So we became foster parents. And, um, and they didn't give us a nine year old kid. It ended up being a 16 year old girl whose mom was a drunk and who wanted to get in the system. It was not what I planned, but it was one more time of like, look, you don't get to choose who you help. She, all she wanted to do is have a stable home and get through high school. That's all she wanted. And her mom was a barroom drunk and she had no dad. And she told me when she was in college, she said, you know what I loved about living with you guys? Every night we had, we had dinner together. Because how I treat my family, see, a lot of people are like, AA here, they talk spiritual here, and then they go home and they, they yell at their family and stuff. That ain't, that ain't Alcoholics Anonymous. I was two years, I haven't, I haven't raised my voice to my wife in over 20 years. 20 years have I not had a, I mean, look, clearly God's working in my life, because that is not me. I grew up in a home where whoever yelled the loudest won the argument. And because I'm short, I got to yell louder, you know. And uh, I was two years sober, and I said something to Chloe. We got in an argument, and I slammed the door, and I said, F you, and I slammed the door and walked onto my truck, and I started crying. I'm like, I don't want to be that guy. It's not, I don't want to destroy one more thing. I don't want to do that. And I started asking God, please allow me to be principled in my relationship with my wife. And then I heard Don P. saying the same thing. Let me tell you the power of that. The power isn't that, I mean, because that's cool. Here's the real power. My daughter's 13 years old. For 13 years, she's watched her dad treat her mom with respect. She knows nothing else but how a man treats a woman is with respect and honor. And when some knucklehead ever starts disrespecting my girl, I guarantee you, she's going to say, that ain't how a man treats a woman. See, that's the power. Equally or more important is I have a nine-year-old son. And he is learning through the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous how a man treats a woman. That's the power here. What we do matters. I am forever grateful for the journey I've been blessed with. I can't even tell you how a guy from my, where I came from being homeless on the streets to being the CEO of a treatment center, it doesn't even make sense. It's not even right. I got doctors that work for me. I always like want to boss them around. I sponsor a parole officer. The best gift I've ever been given. I thank God when he, when he gave me him, I was like, thank you, God. No lie. I had, at the same time, I had a lawyer and a parole officer and I was looking for the judge. I was like, I gotta get a trifecta, man. I will like. <laughs> so I'm gonna close. This is a, uh, I'm going to tell you a story, then I'm going to close. Well, I got, looks like i got four minutes left. So I'm going, to tell you, um, I'm going to tell you what Don taught me. Don taught me about living by intuitive thought, about everything must be intuitive, like decisions you make must be intuitive, about really gut-level meditation. He said, a lot of people talk to God. They'll pray, pray, pray. Very few people meditate. He says, I want you to get into the exercise of really inviting God into meditation and making decisions on that. He says, you will be amazed. I make all my decisions I remember I spoke in Iceland one time. It was 2005. He was dying of cancer. And a guy from Iceland called me and said, hey, we need you to speak. They called me in January and said, we need you to speak in March. I said, like, can you cut it any closer? And he said, well, Don gave us your name. And he was supposed to speak, but he's got cancer again, and he can't make it, and he gave us your name. I thought Don gave me, I, I was, like, so impressed. I'm like, awesome. I called Don up about a couple weeks before I was going. I was like, why would you give him my name? You must know hundreds of better speakers than me. He goes, oh, I absolutely do. <laughs> he goes, but when my cancer came back, I went in, I went in deep and started asking every, who should speak at this conference. So, you know, you're supposed to go. So I was living in uh, Texas. My family was living in, um, living in Maine because my kids were in school. I was living out in Texas by myself. I had this house. And my dad, this is three years ago, three and a half years ago, my dad was starting to have strokes. And, and I, you know, my parents, there's a lot of heat with my parents. They're like, we're good, right? I had just seen them. They just seen my kids in October, and it's around April, and he's having strokes, and he's going in and out of the hospital. And I come out of meditation one day, and the, and the voice says, and the messed up thing about listening to God's voice, it's always in your voice. It's never like, it's never like a Yoda voice or something or a Darth Vader. It's always, always my voice. So I always got to pay attention to that. Like, did I really want that? And, the voice says, what I hear is, go see your dad. 
That's what I hear. Go see your dad. So I called my brother up and I said, hey, I, I think I'm going to go fly to Tucson to see dad. You know, I have a feeling he's not doing good. No, he's good. He's living at mom's. He's great. He just got out of the hospital. He's fine. No need to go. Stay at work. Do that. Blah, blah, blah. I call my mom. She says the same thing. Look, I, I get a ticket and I fly, to, <laughs> I fly to Tucson the next day. I walk into my mom's house. She goes, what are you doing here? I said, I don't know. I just come to see you and dad. And uh, I walk in and my dad's on my mom's bed and he's dying. Because, see, what I understand is my mom's been married 56 years. She doesn't want to see the truth. That the man she married when she was 18 is dying. She said he's dehydrated. I climbed into bed with my dad. And he had the bluest eyes. And he was a real gentle guy. A real good guy. And I climb into bed with him. And I'm wiping his forehead off. And he looks up at me and he says, Hey, I love you, son. I'm really proud of you. That's all a kid. That's all a son wants. Something to want anything else. I never had another conversation with him. He died two weeks later. And uh, when I did his eulogy, when I was up doing his eulogy, in the audience was a bunch of guys that I used to rob and that used to run drugs with, guys I made amends to, they're over here because they heard and they text me all week. Hey, your dad, we saw this. Can we come to your service? They wanted to come to my service. And then all these other A people from Tucson because that's where I got sober over there. Always listen. And I'll, I'll tell you the, uh, the best gift I ever got, and I, I underestimate the intuitiveness of, of uh, kids. My daughter was eight years old, and I was sponsoring lots of guys in the prison. And I had this reality, like, i got to tell my daughter the story. Like, she doesn't know the story. She didn't know I robbed banks or was in prison. And uh, it, But it's clearly it's going to come out. I mean, I'm sponsoring, like, a lot of guys from the prison would come out, and they would hang out, you know. And these guys got neck tattoos, and they're all, you know, like, and we're all telling war stories, smoking cigars, <laughs> you know. And I'm like, my daughter's name, her name is Quincy Blue. And I tell you, she's sharp. And I told Chloe, I said, i got to tell Quincy. Like, we have to tell her. And my wife says, yeah, like, when are you going to do it? I said, well, I'm going skiing with her tomorrow. It's just her and I. We're going to go two hours up, ski all day, ride the lift together, two hours. I said, I think I'll tell her. So I pull Quincy aside, and I, I get up, and she was just the most precious thing. You know, like, when you're a 40-year-old man and you think you're never going to have kids, like, look, she is, my, she is the apple of my eye. Man, this girl is amazing. And she's like... Eight years old, and she's innocent. And uh, I said, hey, I need to tell you something. And she says, what's up, Daddy? And I said, well, I just want to, I just need to tell you something. And I said, you know, I did some bad things before. And um, I'd spent seven years in prison in my 20s. And she burst out crying, like uncontrollably sobbing. And I had that moment of, like, it was too soon. I shouldn't have done it. And she's like heaving, snot crying. And I said, uh, I go, what's up, baby? And she looks at me and she said, you must have been so lonely. And then she comes up and says, I'm so proud of you. Like she knows why we do what we do. When I told my son, this is why I know men and women, are, boys and girls are different. Told my son, he's like, oh, cool, let's go play football. <laughs> So I'm going to close with a story. I, I haven't done this in a while, but it's uh, I'm talking about the prison, and I don't I don't really uh, and I I gotta say this, like I'm a man of faith, truly a man of faith, but God's never really talked to me or give me visions. Like that thing that happened in Seattle was a big deal for me. Only twice in my sobriety, maybe three times, this has happened. But I'm doing a third step. The way I took guys through the steps in the prison, I couldn't take each guy, one guy at a time, to like the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, their solution. I couldn't do it, so I took them as a group. And then we would do a group third step, and everybody would write inventory themselves. And then we would, you know, they'd write inventory at different lengths. And then I'd do fifth steps. It was just crazy, right? And a lot of guys would wash out through the process because it gets too real. And uh, But I always ended up with about 50% of the guys. And so at this time, we had like 20 guys in the room, and they stayed all the way through. And I was like, wow, this... This is going to be crazy. And, uh, and really some hardcore guys. And like these guys were like watching me for years. And they came to this group. And I said, I always said it like this. I said, look, guys, this is how it's going to work. When I'm sponsoring on the streets, we would get on our knees and we would link hands and we would do the third step prayer. But whatever you guys are comfortable with. And they said, no, we're going to do it like you do on the streets. And they 
push all the chairs back and they said, let's do this. I said, all right. And we link up and I had this vision and it's the, and I shared it with them and now it's a running joke. They call me the great white hunter now because of this, but the, the vision I got and I came out of this third step and it happened like that of what Alcoholics Anonymous has been for me and what it was like. And it was like just this clear. Like I was in the dark forest of alcoholic, alcoholism. I was in this dark forest. Like I was lost, stumbling around. And I met this guy named Ken Webb, who was my sponsor. And Ken showed up in this forest and said, hey, you want to get out of this forest? Then follow me. When I make a left, you make a left. When I make a right, you make a right. When I step over a rock, you step over a rock. Just follow me. And I followed him. And then the forest split open and it was like blue, really blue sky and really fresh air and really green grass. And we took a breath. And he goes, all right, now let's go back in and get two more. <laughs> and then we go back in and we get two more. And then we walk out and we take a breath and we go back and get four more. That's Alcoholics Anonymous. I thank you for inviting me.